around. There's this there's this trope about how good science fiction writers could have imagined cars, but great science fiction writers could imagine traffic jam. So, okay, great. We're going to have a world where we have fewer cars. That's going to be good for the environment because 40% fewer cars are made, uh, lower carbon footprint. All of this is great. How is that going to change where people live? Because now if I don't have to think about when I commute and everybody's got a robot chauffeur and I don't even need to own a car, how is that going to change my house? What do I need a garage for? I'd rather have a personal Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Eric Redman. Eric, thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want to hear about the new book, Deep Tech, but let's start off with uh, what do you get to do day to day at Nike as the director of tech innovation? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's that's really my day job. It's a matter of public record. I can't really talk about what I do day to day, to be honest. The the funny thing about doing innovation is the fact that you get to be first. The downside is you kind of have to be quiet about it yeah. <laughs> until it comes. Out. I guess I could have guessed that. Maybe maybe a better question is what are any what are any previous successes that are public now? Oh yeah, here I mean here's a couple examples is actually if you buy any Nike product there are RFID and QR codes on all of them and that originally that research that our team helped bring to life. Oh, interesting. And how did you get to Nike? What's kind of the career path? Yeah, yeah, it, let's say meandering is probably the best. I started off working in in a series of startups. I co-founded two took two to exit and drove two into the ground. And they were all on various emerging technologies at the time. So I started off really sort of in the open source world. How do we bring technology to life faster? And then kind of started moving into big data was early in on, on, on that space, then started getting into wearables. So Google Glass, specifically, I had two books actually about Google Glass, as well as a very thriving healthcare company based off of it before Google sort of pulled the rug out from under us. And yeah, just very, very all over the map. I actually had some of the first apps on the Apple store, uh, on the iPhone store. My very first app had 2 million downloads and then million right after that. And just, I, I was an early miner at Bitcoin. I've just always been involved in tech since uh, as far as I can remember. And where did you grow up? Waterloo, Indiana. Oh, yeah. That's all I got to say about that. What kind of advantages do you think you had from the way that you grew up that kind of helped you as you've pursued this career? Yeah, I would say mindset. There's sort of a scarcity mindset when you grow up without a lot. And the interesting thing is you, you got to learn how to make do with what you've got. And as sort of a budding hacker and technologist, like I built my first computers myself. I used to I drive to just this old computer parts building that it was really, really for scrap parts that major companies as they, their hardware and technology got outdated, they would just dump it there. And so they would just let me rummage through and I just ended up building a bunch of computers. And that's really, really how I got my start. Yeah, that's cool. So what, what are the names of the ones that you exited? 
Oh, sure. So one one is actually still around. It's called Sonatype, and it was the company was the very first to really start kicking off. If you know anything about technology, called DevOps or CI/CD revolution. This was in the mid two thousands. It started as an open source project, still an open source project called Maven. And then the other company out of Kansas City that was doing something that we were calling keyword arbitrage. So really optimizing the disparity between ads like Google, Google ads early on, and the the, the, the value acquired from the products that it would redirect you to. Very cool. So I'm interested in why go back to the corporate machine after entrepreneurship? Like Nike's cool, don't get me wrong, but but my guess is there was a bit of a, you know, there was some back and forth. Yeah, I mean, I had a kid. That, that's the that's the short answer. Yeah. I had a kid, I'm local, and I'm like, oh, this seems like a really cool place to work. I mean, I've always had uh, a, a ton of respect for the company and for the brand. I mean, just like everybody else, I just grew up with this sort of, Sure. Omnipresent yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, brand everywhere. I was a runner actually in 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 high school. I was in the uh, state champion in in one of the track events. What, what distance? And well, it was four by eight hundred, so it was a relay. So it's not okay. that impressive. It wasn't an individual thing. But yeah, and yeah, beyond that, that's how I started. And then I found out, wow, there's just a lot going on here. Very cool. You know, I'm sure that's a really competitive position. What do you think it is about? your background that, that they wanted you? It's hard to say. I, I, I really, I, I don't know. <laughs> I would say having a varied experience always helps. Being in the right place at the right time always helps. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I'm really interested in the book, especially because, you know, the little I know about it already has big implications for the finance world as well. Probably every company on earth, but, but especially us. Mm-hmm. I feel like in certain ways, can you kind of talk about the, you know, just quickly cover, tell us what the eight technologies are that you cover and, and just a little bit of an elevator pitch on the book. And I've got some specific questions for you. Sure. The, yeah, the tech is that we cover is artificial intelligence, extended reality, which is like AR and VR, blockchain technologies, internet of things, autonomous vehicles, 3d printing and quantum computing. The reason for those are because those are all technologies that actually exist today, and they are at various stages of coming to fruition, some of which, and they're kind of in order, really, artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality, blockchain, IoT. Those are, those, are, those are already making waves and disrupting various industries. Autonomous vehicles are next, 3D printing is next, quantum computing is next. They're all coming. So if you take all of these technologies, you sort of add them up in terms of what are the projected gross world product that these technologies are going to add over the next decade, we're really talking anywhere from 50 to $250 trillion. These aren't my numbers, actually. These are from Gardner and Forrester and McKinsey and Deloitte, and as well as sort of specialist companies like that, that, are, that are in these various technologies. And what I kind of did was took a Nate Silver pull of polls approach, took all of these estimates, weighted them, averaged them, and then came up, I mean, and then error bars being what they are, it's somewhere between at the lowest, lowest end, 50 trillion in impact, and on the highest end, a quarter of a quadrillion dollars in impact. You know, one of the things that I've heard you say that I like is that people don't need to be, I mean, correct me here, but what I believe you said is that people don't necessarily need to be overwhelmed by this stuff. And not everybody needs to learn it, but we need to learn how it applies to what we do and how we can use it. Is that close or what, how would you say that better? 
<laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I think it's a pretty good way of saying it. I mean, I think it's worth understanding that digital transformation has been happening slowly for the past decade, right? Within major corporations and, of course, startups, but also society at large. I mean, you look at, you know, increasing numbers of cities are becoming smart cities, for example. This was always going to happen. What I think is interesting about this particular moment are two things. One, the timeline's been accelerated by five to 10 years because of the pandemic, really. I know that there are folks, there's kind of holding out for the pandemic to end, hoping we'll go back to the way things were, like going back to the office, taking phone calls, <laughs> going back to manual processes. But that's just not likely. And it's largely driven by consumers. Consumers are expecting a digital experience now. Uh, high achieving employees like the flexibility of remote work. So we're not going to go back. So the acceleration is happening. I mean, Nike, for example, is five years ahead on their direct-to-consumer numbers. I mean, a significant percentage of products are bought online rather than in-store now. We were planning on hitting these numbers by 2025. So we're way ahead like of that. like 15% or something I heard you say before? Is that... No, it's it's 30 and, and, and trending even, you know, more. And so, you know, more people are banking online. They're buying food online. They're buying sundries from Target online. And the interesting thing is boards have noticed, boards of directors, like 60% of boards now say that COVID has accelerated their digital transformation strategy. And so the book is not about the what, but the so what. The tech I cover in the book is really intended to give leaders a minimal literacy of these technologies. But what you do with them is really up to you. So that's number one. Let's set that aside. The other interesting thing about this is economists have this term called GPT, general purpose technologies. And these are technologies that have fundamentally changed the world in some significant way. And of course, bring value through that change. And you can, I mean, if you go back far enough, you can talk about the invention of writing systems, the invention of money. But then you go fast forward. Now you're talking about, okay, the steam engine or electricity or the internet and computers. Generally, a GPT will pop up at best once a generation. But what we're in right now, those seven technologies, each are on the cusp of becoming general purpose technologies, all seven, all in one decade. I mean, this is completely unheard of in, in, in all of human history. So if you think it was hard to say in the, the, the mid-2000s or late 2010s to make the switch from physical to this mobile device thing. Well, that's just one. That's smartphones. And the whole thing about deep tech is it's technology that was impossible yesterday, barely feasible today, but tomorrow will be so ubiquitous, it's hard to imagine life without it. And it's a fundamental reimagining of the world and how we interact with it. And so an example is cell phones. You, you take 15 years ago, there were no smartphones. Only 15 years ago. Now, imagine a world that doesn't have it. It just disappears. I mean, if, you, if I lose my phone, I feel like I've lost a limb, like I've lost a part of me. I'm like, where did it go? That kind of, that, that is a big driver. Like mobile phones, smartphones are a general purpose technology. 10 years from now, we're going to feel the same way about AI. How did we live without AI? Self-driving cars. How did we allow people to drive cars? that cause accidents and kill 1.3 million people a year. How, how, how did we ever do drug research without quantum computers? And so that's the sea change we're in over this next decade. So really, the book is more of a, a, a warning signal than anything that this is coming and you need to understand that this is not optional anymore. You know, it's interesting. 
I think about our applications of, you know, at, at Greystoke Investments, we're buying, we're trying to buy real estate that where we don't have to compete with like the big funds out of New York. So it has higher, higher cash flow for our monthly checks for the investors, right? And so you look at what's going on in the real estate world right now. And like, like we're, we just bought this beachfront property and well, we didn't buy it. We tied up this beachfront property in Hawaii that were, that's got this great zoning. We think we can make all this money if we can pull it off. Right. And we are going through options with our partners. My one, my one partner lives like five minutes away from the property. And you're like, we're like doing the research. It's like $70 for a sheet of plywood. Right. And you're like, uh, you know, and the planning is so bad, you know, the, the, the supply chain and shipping so expensive and everything's been pushed back because they were trying to ship all the PPP. And I'm like, all I'm thinking about is a couple months ago when we had a guy on the show who in Long Island is 3D printing homes. 3D with printing houses. Yeah, giant, yeah, yeah. He's got this giant concrete 3D printer. <laughs> and I'm thinking like, what if we used about like 80% less wood <laughs> and we got him to ship one of those things over, you know? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, that's, I, I love that you brought that up because that's one of my absolute favorite current day examples is the price of wood is through the roof. 3D printing homes are valuable. I, I've, got a, I've got a very simple set of rules of thumb about realizing what technology is going to happen next. I mean, this is, this is literally what my job is. It's like, what's going to happen next? What's worth looking at? What's worth investing in? What's not? And there, there are two things. One is this, is it, is it, is it technically physically possible to do this? Because if it turns out it's not possible, I mean, you can talk about cold fusion all day long, but until it actually happens, it's just a hypothesis. It'd be a cool thing. Flying hover cars. Sounds great until it's out there. It's, it's, it's just a, a cool theory. So don't even worry about that kind of stuff. But once it exists, and that's the interesting thing, is all the technologies I cover in this book all exist today in some form. They might not be ready for prime time yet, but they do exist. So check. 3D printing houses, absolutely. Number two is, is there a benefit to adopting this technology that is has a fundamental improvement in some way, either whether or in terms of cost in terms of quality, in terms of speed. There just has to be something that this is an order of magnitude better than the old way. And it can't just be an incremental improvement. It has to be a massive improvement. It's like, look, I, there's a reason people don't always buy like the, the newest gadgety toothbrush. It's not because they're not better. It's that they're not an order of magnitude better than the old toothbrush that I had. And so most people don't adopt. There'll always be sort of people that's like, I just want the newest and best thing. You know, think about the, the, the law of diffusion of innovation, right? It's like the crossing the chasm. It's like th there's always going to be a early adopters, whatever. Forget them. 10% mark penetration, as Simon Sinek says, you could trip over that. That doesn't matter. That's a rounding error. But if you want to get into mass market penetration, it has to be an order of magnitude better than before. So that's one, I think, important lens so then it becomes great is this going to be useful is this possible that's about now timing how do we actually decide when to get in on this technology and so my other simple rule of thumb is look at the gartner hype cycle that that the hype cycle being the sort of curves up it drops down and then it slowly ramps back up because whenever there's some new technology it's overhyped in the beginning think about self-driving cars six, seven years ago, Waymo came out, Uber was doing it. 
I think even Apple was getting into the game. Like everybody's like, oh, self-driving cars are going to happen. Well, yes, it will happen. The question is, when will it happen? It's usually after the hype has died down. <laughs> it's on the far end of the hype cycle. Don't get on the upswing of the first hype. Wait until it falls, then get on. And I mean, this is almost like a rule of gravity. Look at Bitcoin. People were so, so there was the first hype in 2017 where Bitcoin hit up to 20,000 and then it fell. That's when you buy <laughs> because there actually is utility here and it actually is better than many other stores of value. And so if you would have bought at the trough, I think it dipped something down to like 5,000 a coin. Then it hit up to 60. So now we don't need to talk about Bitcoin per se. You're talking to a cash flow guy. So I struggle with Bitcoin. Well, well, well <laughs> I, personally, personally, in terms of cryptocurrencies, I'm, I'm, I'm much more bullish on Ethereum because Ethereum is actually useful yeah. in, in, in a lot of ways in the sense that it uh, sort of creates this system of, of smart contracts where you can sort of automatically initiate transfers being also built on top of it. So like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, things like that. So don't get into NFTs now. Like we're in the hype cycle. Wait till it crashes then get into NFTs. Well, you think about that, you know, so I'd love to give you some, some of my like, you know, baby ideas of how we could apply this stuff in my world and then have you take it a step farther. Is that okay? Sure, okay. Yeah. Something in like, you know, blockchain, right? Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not going to have to waste money on title insurance and I'm not going to have to take so long with the lawyers and all these things. If I could be mm -hmm. transferring title of these big commercial real estate buildings via blockchain, and it's yeah. actually more secure than having the lawyers waste all the time that they waste, right? Less, mm -hmm. less time, less cost. I think about like autonomous vehicles, right? Everybody hates malls right now. They're like, oh, shopping's going online, you know, Gap's going out of business, whatever. And it's like, I, I look at guys that like Bruce Flatt at Brookfield. They're like, no, don't you understand? It's like 100 acres, the best real estate in town. <laughs> you just got to reimagine it. It's, you know, yes, get your clothing store out of there, but put in your, you know, Tesla showroom or your Amazon room, or, you know, like you can see if Nike's going this digital, like you go there to go see all the cool stuff and it becomes like the showroom and the experience. And then you order it online, right? Mm -hmm. And put in the experiential resident restaurants and apartment buildings above and store Like if everybody doesn't need, if there is enough autonomous vehicles, you can have like one of those multi-story car things way off in the corner of the parking lot where nobody ever wants to park. Because the self-driving car can drop you at the front, drop you and your wife off for your anniversary at the nice mm -hmm. restaurant, drive itself to the back corner and put itself up, right? And you well, can better. move that, more better. of this parking lot into more real estate. What were you going to say? 90, 95% of a car's life is spent idle, just sitting there. There have been estimates, I think it might have come from Barclays when they did a research on this. The estimate is that we will require 40% fewer cars mm. once autonomous vehicles exist. And so, and the argument being that, well, why do we even need a car to sit around and park itself? Why park at all? Why not just go to pick up the next person and pick up the next one and pick up the next one? 30% of an average city's space is, as you said, parking lot. Well, imagine when you can reclaim all of that, because it is very often very prime real estate. And so there are there are companies and, and or, or there are architects now that are actually thinking about this in advance saying, all right, we're going to build a parking garage because we need them today. However, 
let's think about as we're designing them and building them, how they could then be repurposed as maybe a commercial building without having to tear the whole thing down and structurally rebuild it. And so now is the time to start thinking in that way because, because yeah, it's, it's going to come faster than I think many of us realize. I mean, I talked about self-driving cars as an example of something that sort of hit the hype cycle and then it dies down. Well, what, what people forget is like at the far end, once the hype has died, it goes into something called the trough of disillusionment. They have names for all these parts yep. of the curve. And then it goes up the slope of enlightenment, which I absolutely love that term because it's like now it's like this is where the real work is happening right now. When we when you are not talking about self-driving cars, that's when all the interesting stuff is happening, which is why, I mean, just to be clear, like I'm, I'm very heavily, heavily leveraged into companies that have heavy self-driving car holdings because I believe in that so much. Basically GM and, and Google right now, there's not a whole lot out there. So what's what's what I think is really, really interesting about this is okay, thinking even further down, there's this there's this trope about how good science fiction writers could have imagined cars, but great science fiction writers could imagine a traffic jam. So okay, great. We're going to have a world where we have fewer cars. That's going to be good for the environment because 40% fewer cars are made, uh, lower carbon footprint. All of this is great. How is that going to change where people live? Because now if I don't have to think about when I commute and everybody's got a robot chauffeur and I don't even need to own a car, how is that going to change my house? What do I need a garage for? I'd rather have a personal gym than a, just you know a garage. I'd rather just Uber everything and borrow as I need it. So I hop in a car, I can get anywhere I want. Now I can live outside the city. So what's the value if I could just go out for a drink and then have a car pick me up and take me home? Why do I need to live three blocks away? Just, you know, there's those ramifications. Then you think through the, the, the downside. This is where I think things get funky is 1.3 million people currently die every single year. Self-driving cars, presumably will adopt them when they're better than human drivers, that number will go down. Maybe not down to zero. Ideally, let's say that in the best case scenario, we go from 1.3 to zero deaths a year. However, what are the ramifications of that? Well, guess where our number one source of organ transplants come from? Automobile accidents, healthy organs generally, because they tend to be younger um, and healthy and not diseased. And so what do we do in a world where we have fewer organs available? 3D print. Now we can 3D print organs. And so it's like, there's this and that and that and that. I absolutely love also your comment about what do we do with blockchain? I mean, blockchain is really a representation of trust where agents don't necessarily have a reason to trust each other. That's why the, the, the Bitcoin ecosystem works so well, because everyone has an incentive to cheat, but everyone has an incentive to make sure no one else cheats. And so it's sort of the prisoner's <laughs> dilemma writ large. And so they've created sort of this mathematical structure in such a way where there's this concept called a 51% attack. It's actually possible for someone to own 51% of the network. There have been miners that have gotten close. They get to 49 and then they stop. Why? Because they know it would devalue Bitcoin and they happen to be the biggest holders of it. So they have a greed incentive not to do that because if they took over the network, they would now have a majority stake in a worthless asset. And so it sort of creates this like interesting equilibrium in the whole system. So, all right, let's say we've got this system that is a source of trust and 
I've got these vehicles that are out there driving around. You could easily do microtransactions and micropayments through this network. And I'm not even necessarily using cash for it. And every second I'm in the car, it's sort of ticking down on a blockchain. And the second I get out, it stops ticking. And then it'll make that transaction happen through a smart contract. So this is where things get interesting is how all of these technologies interplay together. But in order to start being able to envision that future, you've got to understand the very basics and have a literacy of what all this tech is capable of. Yeah. You know, one that I think about for, like to me, VR, AR always seemed like more of a toy. And I got to go to this, we, we were helping this program with the Vatican that was a startup investment fund that was investing in socially responsible startups. And I thought it was cool. I'd never been to Italy. I always wanted to go to Italy, right? So I got to go to like demo days inside the Vatican with like Danny DeVito and the head of the, like the number two cardinal for the Vatican, right? I thought it was really cool. All these billionaires, blah, blah, blah. And I was nobody, but I was glad to be a fly on the wall. And somebody had some really amazing AR. And I was like, oh, this is what people meant. Like, holy cow. Like you really... Mm -hmm you really felt like the person who was talking was standing there and just the surround sound on the sound and, yep. you know what I mean? Just the, the perspective change was really sophisticated. And you're like, this is a, this is a really magnetic experience. That's the first time. That's the first time it ever felt the like, Ooh, this is way more than a toy. Right. <laughs> and I'm just thinking like, you know, in our world, we're trying to get investors to want to put a bunch of money with us. So we can send them their monthly checks. Right. And I was thinking, like, imagine if they go to GraystokeInvestments.com. We've got all the stuff you'd normally expect. And we're saying, like, click here for the AR experience or the VR experience. And Mm -hmm. they can either go outside and now see the AR of the new building we want being built right in front of them in a field. Or a VR experience of come walk through our stuff and really feel like, you know, Hawaii sounds great. Come see what it feels like to be at our property. You know? Yeah. I don't know. That's How would you take that further? Well, I, I mean, I think I, I think you're you're definitely on the right track. I mean, I, so I'm building a house. Conveniently enough, it's about two blocks away from where I live right now, and I'm I'm living that increased lumber cost oh, as, as we speak. But what there was, there's a hole in the ground, and so I actually I actually built a a virtual reality version of my house. I've got my little Oculus Quest here, and and what's interesting is it totally changed how we go about building our house because my wife's got a style and I've got a style and we already have furniture, for example. And it it definitely kind of inverted the experience a little bit because everything isn't settled. We could move walls around. We could decide whether we want to build things or not. And so we, what we did was we just placed things virtually in a building that didn't even exist yet. And you'd look around you can walk around and be like, Oh, okay. I want to put our buffet here we don't need this wall. Let's just take this wall out. And then we could have the the conversation with the the, the builder. And he's like, oh yeah, no, that's no, that's no problem. Let's do that. Let's take that wall out. That's, it's, it's definitely, a, that's not something I think we could have easily done or envisioned before being able to virtually walk through if it were just drawings on a, on a piece of paper. Because we wouldn't have, I mean, we know, we wouldn't have known whether this would have, how it would have felt. What you're describing is sort of this sense of presence. I mean, this is the big thing. This is something I harp on in the book a lot is, is virtual reality isn't valuable because it's a cooler computer screen. Virtual reality is valuable as well as mixed reality and augmented reality because it creates a sense of 
presence more completely. You know, right now we're talking on Zoom or Squadcast. We're talking on 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 a on a video screen. That video screen is 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 nice. It's better than a complete phone call. I can see you, but that's about it. It doesn't go much beyond that. It doesn't feel like you're really here, other than incrementally more than a phone. But when you're in virtual reality, there have been studies that actually show this actually fires more neurotransmitters of a wider variety, including things like oxytocin, which is like the social chemical that your that your brain produces that makes you feel more there. There's a, there's, there's a really great video that came out a few years ago called uh, Clouds Over Sidra. And what this guy did, he was a filmmaker that went to a Syrian refugee camp and followed this little girl around and her family around. And it gave you a sense of presence. It made you feel like you were there. And then what he did is he took this, this video, he took this VR headset and went to Davos He went to the UN. He went to all of these events that all these important people that are that are that are that are making decisions that affect billions of people's lives that might not had the 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 desire or interest or even thought about going to a refugee camp and seeing what it was like. Try it on, and then they felt like they were there. They felt moved, and they felt moved to action. And I think that's probably one of the more valuable emerging technologies uh, that are coming out because it's going to fundamentally change how we connect as humans more than the others, which I think like AI is great, but AI isn't going to make us feel a closer sense of connection to each other. It's just going to be artificial brains doing artificial brain things. But XR is, yeah, probably the most exciting of all. And this is why you'll hear a lot of talk about the metaverse and the metaverse is sort of you can think about it as the web 3.0, or some people call it the spatial web. But this idea of the next evolution of the internet, the next evolution of the web is really going to be sort of this blurring of the physical and digital world with what is real. <laughs> I mean, I actually, I've, I've been reading this French philosopher, Baudrillard, <laughs> recently, and you know, he's been talking about this since the 60s about, you know, what is simulation? What is real? What is not real? And it starts getting mind-melting after a while, but it's not just dry philosophical text anymore. Now it's like, something we're going to have to live with. Like Ready Player One? Like, what are we talking about? Yeah, it, it really is. It's like, I mean, Ready Player One a, as a start, you know, I'll give a really good example, is Gucci just came out with an NFT for a virtual bag. I think it costs $20,000, which is more than the physical bag would be. And so some people will look at that and be like, that's crazy. Why wouldn't you just buy the the physical bag? It's like, but you're kind of missing the point. The virtual bag has value in itself, right? Think about Gen Z. Gen Z do not have a divide between their digital self and their physical self anymore, especially with COVID and the pandemic. They've been locked down during some prime uh, years of their life. They don't have a physical persona and a digital persona. They just have themselves and they're melding the two. The metaverse is sort of the next evolution of even that and saying, all right, once society has has understood and so completely accepted that, look, this, this Louis Vuitton wallet that I have was probably not worth $500. Why do I have it? Because every time I pull it out, I feel awesome. I feel like, man, I'm, I'm a baller and look at this cool wallet I have. It was stupid. I bought it in Vegas. I was drunk. So, but, but 
I could get that feeling without even owning a physical thing and in the visual in 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 the in the digital world. And that's the that's the reason kids are buying Nikes on Fortnite to put on their avatar. It's not because they don't know it's not usable. It's because it is usable to them. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because I've I've got four kids. My kids are Gen Z, right? And my 10-year-old the other day who came in is like telling us, you know, why he needs some money so that he can buy some, so that he can buy an in an in video game purchase, yeah. whatever, right? And oh, yeah. he's just convinced that he needs it. You know, it's going to be so much better. Um, mm-hmm. It is interesting to see the evolution. You know, the one that I maybe am probably less familiar with, except, you know, just maybe like the headlines, but in what ways do you see quantum quantum computing changing things? You know, you know, what's interesting is just a couple of weeks ago, there was a company called, I believe it's Cambridge Quantum, and they found a significant quantum speed up to Monte Carlo problem. The Monte Carlo problems being sort of, this, yeah, mathematical underpinnings of all kinds of investments. I then saw JP Morgan is starting to hire quantum quants because it turns out that you can actually leverage quantum computing now today to get some supremacy some speed up over classical computers the simplest description i can think of about how big of a deal quantum computers are is so classical computers as fast as they might be can only hold one state at a time they just move really 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 fast so it'll be like you know, it's sort of like, think about it like a video screen. It's like a picture. This looks like a movie to us, but it's really not. It's just one picture followed by another picture followed by another picture at 30 frames a second or 60 frames a second. We perceive it as motion. That's how computers actually work. Under the covers, they're just doing one instruction at a time. Quantum computers can do all of its instructions simultaneously. Now, to understand what that means with a 300 qubit quantum computer, 300 qubits, which is called quantum bit, you could have as many states simultaneously as there are atoms in the known universe. You couldn't possibly build a supercomputer that big. And so there, there's this concept called quantum supremacy, like this point where the, the best quantum computer defeats the best classical supercomputer in the world. Google claims to have hit quantum supremacy two years ago now. It was like October 2019, so 18 months. Now it was a toy problem, but it, it had it been executed with a clap, I think it took them two minutes to run this algorithm. Had they done it with a classical quantum computer or classical supercomputer, it would have taken 10,000 years to execute. Wow. So- Quantum speed. Now, unfortunately, it wasn't a useful problem. It's completely a contrived toy problem. But but that's why, for example, this Monte Carlo thing are becoming very interesting because now we're getting to the point of, all right, we're getting out of the lab, out of the theoretical into practical use cases. So where quantum computers can be valuable is all sorts of things, one of which is obviously simulation of, of molecules. So that can be used for drug discovery. Think about COVID-19 a year ago. There was just this rush to find a cure, find a vaccine. You To run simulations requires this concept called protein folding that requires being able to simulate a thousand molecules at once. It was exabytes 
of supercomputing execution, as well as people like us donating spare computing cycles to run over months and months and months of time to run simulations on these potential drugs. In a couple of years, this is something that any any drug company, any drug researcher could just sit down and run hundreds of simulations in a day. So what's that going to do for well, making new drugs? I mean, same thing with making new materials, optimization problems, all kinds of things. Yeah, it's interesting. We had a couple of women on the show who recently out of NYU and are landing like contracts with major, major chemical companies because the one woman in her PhD program figured out an AI system that would simulate chemical tests. Mm -hmm. And so somebody like, I don't know if this is really a client, but like somebody like a DuPont essentially could create a new chemical, like 80% yeah. cheaper. And that's with AI on a regular computer. Yes. You know, as you talk about this, it sounds like it could drop the cost curve by magnitudes. Yeah, well, and AI is something else. I mean, it, to run these AI models requires massive compute resources. And so there's a lot of work. It, it, it's interesting. Google's quantum computing work actually didn't start with quantum computing. Google's quantum computing work started off as a way of making better AI. That's what they were interested in. And so there's still, that's one of the big use cases for it, this whole like tensor calculation and, and reduction problem can be done with, with a quantum computer. Theoretically, it hasn't been done yet with orders of magnitude um, speed up and, and requiring considerably fewer resources as well. What you mentioned is, yes, AI is an interesting one because AI can do a lot of the things that quantum can do. And however, AI is just an estimate. That's the difference. Is a quantum computer can actually give you a real calculation, not just an estimated value. So that's so if you talk about an optimization problem with a quantum computer, you could get like what is the real ground state, the real optimization. And there are companies like D-Wave, for example, it's like all they do is optimization problems and nothing else. These sort of constrained optimization problems. The jury's still out on whether that's a real quantum speed up or they just built a really fast classical computer. We don't know, but 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 in theory, this sort of quantum supremacy is 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 coming very soon, actually. And in fact, I think right now, I just heard IBM is still on track for a thousand qubit computer by 2025. There's another company called, I believe it's Psi Quantum. I might be confusing it with another one, but they were they're making claims that by the end of the decade they're gonna have a million qubit computer. And so you think about classical computers, there's this concept called Moore's Law where the number of transistors on a chip double every yeah. 18 months or so. Computational power doubles every 18 months. Quantum computers follow this concept called Nevin's Law, which is every year or so, it's doubly exponential. So if you think about an exponential speed up in quantum, in or sorry, in classical computer, in seven generations, that's two to the power of seven. That's 128 times more powerful after seven generations. You do that same calculation with quantum Nevin's law. It's two to the power of two to the power of seven. So it's two to the power of 128. Now we're getting into like the, if it's seven generations. What, it's is a, that, what is a number with 128 zeros behind it? Yeah, like like a quantum, like a quadrillion, multi-nonillion or something like that. Just this insane number that people aren't even used to thinking through. But that's that's why this is so important. Is it's 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 even hard to wrap our head around what we would be like in a world 
where we have this sort of doubly exponential speed of computing power. Well, it makes me think about like, you know, when my dad watched Star Trek and basically they were doing FaceTime on iPhones. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was Star Trek, right? So when you think about when you think about the applications of great, now you've got all this processing power. So there's there's drugs or chemical synthesis. What are, what are other things that come to mind of if we had that much computational horsepower, things that we could be inventing, things that we could be figuring out? Yeah. Well, what, what, on what, space travel calculations or it, it, what I think is when these things get more interesting is when they start becoming recursive and making themselves better. My favorite example is like you can with, with a simple 3D printer, you can build new 3D printer parts on it and improve it. With AI, there is now AI that's starting to design new AIs. So they get better than anyone could possibly design themselves. Quantum is the same thing. I mean, you got to think about quantum computers still made out of physical systems. So if you're able to simulate that physical system using a quantum computer, you could create better quantum computers, better than a human ever could. So suddenly you've just got the, I mean, you know, not to get too like sci-fi about it, because now we're talking, we're talking a little bit down the road, like maybe 20 or 30 years. But now you're talking about like the singularity, like once we've hit this point where we have quantum computers that are simulating themselves and simulating AI to improve themselves in this just endlessly fractal, like it's, it's, it's like quantum and AI all the way down. It's, it's hard for us even to wrap our head around what that's going to change, which is why I tend to not do that. I, I, that's why I never call myself a futurist. I'm more focused on this decade. This decade, what's happening already now let's just assume will likely happen for the rest of the decade. So look at the year 2030. What will the world be like? Pretty similar, I hope, and I believe like now, just with all of this new technology. So how can we make intelligent steps so that as we decide what to invest in and what to focus on, we're, we're all prepared for it? So I'm interested, what are your news sources? Where do you read? How do you keep up on what's happening? You know, people ask me that all the time. I, I've, and, and, and I always have a very disappointing answer, which is I, I have a social network. <laughs> I just, I know a lot of these folks in these research labs and practitioners that are in um, these places. I, I tend to let them do the filtering for me. But that having been said, I mean, you know, people send me things all the time. Like I'll give an example. It's like, I become this big fan of of this metaverse writer, Kathy Hackle, who writes for Forbes. And so she's been sort of educating me on the metaverse, which is kind of this next phase of collection of technologies. It's not just about AR and VR. It's also about AI. It's also about Internet of Things and wearables. It's also about blockchain, cryptocurrency, and non-fungible tokens. So you sort of put all of this together into a soup, and then they just call it the metaverse. I mean... I don't know. Follow me, and I try to share. <laughs> I try to share what I learn as, as much LinkedIn. as LinkedIn. Yeah, for sure. That tends to be where I'm most active. If you follow me on Facebook, you'd be very disappointed. So you get a lot of pictures of my kids. <laughs> Too funny. Well, tell everybody. Tell everybody what they can get at deeptechbook.com. Obviously, they can yeah, come pre-order the book, right? Yeah. Well, it's 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 out now. Yeah. But deeptechbook.com, it's also available on Amazon, hardcover, paperback, digital, as well as an audio book. And, and, and beyond that, I'm, I'm trying to make sure that it's a living document and adding more to it over time. So my hope is that there will be a second edition and a third edition. So this seven will become 
10 and 13 and on and on. Very cool. Well, what, what's one of the best pieces of advice you ever received? That is a great question. My, my uncle would always say that opportunity knocks, but it knocks very softly. And so that's, I think, been my lifelong goal is to just be aware of, of what's coming down the pipe and be open to opportunities that you might not necessarily, might not be the path that you thought you were going to go down. I thought I was going to stay in startups forever and found a lot of tremendous opportunities where I am now. And, and especially when you're talking about digging into emerging technologies and trying to learn really emerging technology, forget about the technology, it's just a tool where the future is going to be. Pay attention to things that I think most folks don't. I don't read the wall street journal to decide, Hey, what hot new technology is coming. I talk to seven-year-olds and they'll tell me what they're interested in. And I'll tell you five years from now, they're the ones that are going to be driving the narrative of what's next. Interesting. What's one of your favorite things about working at Nike? It's easy to, to experiment with good ideas. Probably it's easy to make sparks. There's a lot of energy there. It's very positive environment. And yeah, if you got a great idea, you're often given a lot of leeway to run with it. You just have to deal with the consequences, good or bad. That, that's a really high compliment. I've got to say, you know, we have chief innovation officers from other big multi-billion dollar Fortune 500 companies on here and and, and folks and, and just other corporate innovators. And, you know, what I hear a lot is like, oh, I have a lot of leeway in this in this one little thing. And then when I bring it to, you know, but there's a lot of people like, oh, that's nice that you kids are playing with that. We're doing the real business attitude from a lot of the rest mm-hmm. of the organization and just like even the tone of the way you described it i think it sounds like you're having a different experience than some of them i mean that always exists i mean sure. I, I i would say any anytime you have a group of people especially if if the group has been around for a long time or the organization's been around for a long time you're definitely going to get folks say look we've been doing it this way for 40 years who are you but i i i don't i don't think that that should be a deterrent and you know, I, I, I think it's good to have a big tent mentality, bring those people in, let them understand. And like, like you talked about, you tried on virtual reality, reading about virtual reality, or hearing about virtual reality is like having the taste of food described to you. It's like, it's only going to get so far. Sometimes you just got to try it. And so for me, I, I find that the, the best, we, we've gotten the most traction out of just showing people and letting them experience different ideas. And, you know, you can't make everybody happy all the time, of course, but organizationally, I think, I think we're directionally correct. That's great. Well, congrats on getting the new book out. I appreciate that. Great to talk to you here. Mm -hmm. Take care, Jess. Okay. Bye, everyone.